When you're in a state of anxiousness or control, the future is very important. You're trying to control it. And the more self, the consciousness work you do, the more you start to realize that, you know, you need slight planning, you need some direction, but you also need to let a lot be left to synchronicities and a lot to be left for magic to happen. And becoming aware of that is quite a rush and also quite an awakening because you realize that you've been carrying these thoughts for generations maybe you know welcome back to some assembly required thank you so much for downloading this episode if this is your first time listening how's it my name's sean and this podcast explores the various ways in which we are and in some instances are not yet fully utilizing our brains john sonnet has gone from having it all the house the cars all the outward metrics of success to losing everything I had a tooth missing on the right of my mouth and I couldn't fix it because I didn't have the money. You see, John was a self-made millionaire with six restaurants by the age of 27 and was by all accounts unstoppable. Due to a series of unfortunate events, he lost it all. His business collapsed and he hit bankruptcy. His marriage collapsed and he hit rock bottom. It was much later after going inwards, that he found his true purpose. John is now a five-time best-selling author. He's one of South Africa's top futurists and trend specialists. John now speaks at events all over the world. He also loves dogs. They are a representation of the highest form of consciousness that's close to us. It was the release of his 2022 publication called Who Do We Become?, that brought John into my crosshairs. As someone that has clearly faced his fears and reassembled himself, the first thing I wanted to know was what failure means to him. You know, I've only recently realized that I'm successful. And I mean recently, I mean like two months ago. Really? You know, yeah, I was at uh, a Dr. Joe Dispenza retreat. Quick one. You might have seen scientist, researcher, and teacher Dr. Joe Dispenza featured in the uh, award-winning films, What the Bleep Do We Know?, and down the rabbit hole? Dr. Joe has lectured in more than 20 different countries, educating people about the role and function of the human brain. He's written several best-selling books, including Breaking the Habit of Being Yourself, How to Lose Your Mind and Create a New One. I'll include the links to Dr. Joe's work in the description of this episode. John speaks very highly of the lessons he's learned through Dr. Joe's teaching. Here's John. And one of the things I realized that I've been doing for the longest time is thinking I'm not successful enough. Really? And I've only accepted my success literally like a few weeks ago. You know, this is a brand new thing for me is I am successful. And so I've almost got to feel it in my body that I have achieved the success that I put out my mind to achieve, you know. And I think the problem with our ambitious world is that if you think you're successful, you're going to get lazy. So we all drive ourselves to the point I'm not good enough yet. And what that does, it tells the universe and the reality around us, you're not good enough yet. And that just keeps becoming your mirror. For me, failure being stuck in a victim mindset for far too long. As a regular listener to the show, you will know only too well that I'm on a journey of personal development. So in the book, Claim Your Power by Mustin Kip, he details a 40-day journey to dissolving the hidden emotional trauma that keeps you stuck and finally thrive in your life's unique purpose. In it, he states that discovering your purpose is the most significant thing you will do in your life and you, your loved ones, and the world will be better off because you went on this journey. John sees this activity of seeking a little differently. 
people are stressed about finding their purpose. But I think you should stop looking for your purpose and just follow your curiosity. Your curiosity is the is the sort of golden thread towards your purpose. You know, and my curiosity is human psychology and futurism mixed in the way that I understand it. And the more work I do in it, I realize there is no future. There's only your level of consciousness. And the way you perceive the future is what the future actually becomes. We're incredibly powerful that we don't even realize we are. And so the way I have understood this golden thread of curiosity has led me to this point. And so if you're not following your curiosity and are stressing and are anxious and are always looking for absolute outcomes, you're never going to access your purpose and consciousness. And so, you know, whether it's cooking or whether it's, you know, whatever it may be, follow that thread. You don't know where it's going to go. And so in between my crying and in between staying in my friend's second bedroom and in between smoking far too much marijuana to try and numb myself from the pain, I was still following my curiosity. So it's not like it was a black and white thing. It was mushy, ugly, ugly cries, lots of healing, feeling totally unconfident for so long. I didn't go on a date for two years. I was actually celibate for two years because I was embarrassed to go out with a girl because I didn't have money. I mean, I was just, it was just an embarrassing time of mine. So it, it wasn't black. It wasn't all plain sailing. You know what I mean? I, I, I struggled with a lot of issues inside my own head, but ultimately continuously followed the golden thread of curiosity and you know it's led me to this place and the place he speaks of is a five-time best-selling author and global keynote speaker specializing in futurism and human psychology and now it feels like my next question is almost already answered but what would you say is the biggest lie that we've all been conditioned to believe that what you have inside you is not enough to see you be successful. And I think that what has happened is that the world around us has created these roles for us to fit. And they called an accountant, a lawyer, a doctor, a DJ, whatever, whatever these roles are. And if you didn't fit into one of these roles and your brain didn't work specifically according to those rules, you were a failure. Mm. And if you think about schooling system, if you don't have a STEM mindset, if you're not good at maths, English, science, you're useless. And me, I was... I was a reprobate at school. You know, I was continuously in trouble. I was continuously being expelled. I was just like, I was nowhere. And I lost so much confidence in high school because my brain didn't fit into that 25% that people were very good at. And so I think the society has been built around a very specific type of thinking. And the biggest lie has been said for me, for me has been that if you don't fit in, you are no good. And so as we evolve into this new world where we see the creator economy that's worth billions and billions of dollars now, that's your individual genius being sold through products and services online. And so as we evolve into that, I feel a sense of relief. And when I share this online, I have a whole bunch of people that are sharing in the same belief as me because they also didn't fit in. They were also reprobates at school. And so I think the biggest lie is that if you don't fit into the system, you're a failure. And I think the system is breaking down. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. I believe you placed second in a bodybuilding competition when you were, is it 16? <laughs> Uh, what did that experience teach you? The build up to the placing second after what was that like? Wow, bodybuilding, eh? Um, 
You've got, a, you've got a big smile across your face. It was obviously a, it was still a good time, right? Oh, no, I loved it. Okay, though. good. I loved it. My, my, my body reacted to gym really well. <laughs> and what I realized is that some people just went to gym for years and nothing happened. Yes. <laughs> you know, and mine, I, was, I just looked at weights and I, make, I put muscle on, you know? I don't like people like you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was good at that system, right? Yes. Uh, yeah, I was good at that system. Um, it taught me discipline, you know? It gave me a level of confidence that I never got at school. Because sure. all of a sudden, my body became an incredibly powerful asset that I had mm. and trust me at 17 years old I was taking my shirt off as often as I could <laughs> I even think about now I went to Plet on my matric holiday I never put my shirt on once because I was in such good condition um, but, but you know I did win as well I won junior South African well yeah when I was 19 well um, but I also realized that that world is not a healthy world you know, so after my 19th birthday and I entered that competition, I won it. And then I decided to pull out. Uh, I, that was it. I'd done, I'd done that uh, part of my life. And, and it really did set me up for understanding my body better and really just like celebrating my body. You know, my body did not respond to physical training nearly as well as John's did. For all the years, I toiled away in the water and swam myself to what at the time felt like the edge of my capabilities. I really would have appreciated the rewards of a chiseled chest and a set of quads that could kickstart a Boeing in my 40s. Oh well. With everything I'm learning now about the brain and mind states, maybe it's not too late for me. John, with so much headspace, your headspace, dedicated to future thinking, and correct me if I'm wrong, how do you balance planning and strategizing and being present and not spending too much time ahead? Oh, such a great question, you know, and, and, and a very valid one. I don't think I spend that much time ahead, you know. I, I, I used to spend so much more time ahead. And as I've started to realize that there is no future, there's only the now, you know. And that realization has gotten me to be much more aware of my unconscious thoughts in the now because they are creating my future. Mm. And some of the unconscious thoughts I've picked up recently is the fact that I love self-pity. I'm actually addicted to it. And I think a lot of people around the world are. So they look for situations to feel more self-pity. Okay. And what they say on social media is, I don't want to do any humans today. I want to sit at home. But actually what that is, that's a level of self-pity. That's been an addiction for many times, you know. Another one that I've picked up on is that I'm always in trouble. There's always somebody out to get me, which is another one that a lot of people tell me they also have from. And then the other one is shame. And so what I've realized is the more time I spend in meditation and the more time I spend in my thought process, the more I alleviate the pressure on the future where I release the energy in the now. So I think I've changed over the last few months. And again, it's really quite recent for me is because I've really upped my meditation to a couple hours a day. And in that process, becoming very, very aware of my thinking process. So I don't really spend that much time planning. If I, to be honest with you, I really don't know what's happening in my calendar over the next few weeks. I just don't know. I'm just, I know for the next day. And I'm quite comfortable with that. And that never used to be. But also remember that when you're in a state of anxiousness or control, the future is very important. You're trying to control it. And the more self, the consciousness work you do, the more you start to realize that, you know, you need slight planning, you need some direction, but you also need to let a lot be left to synchronicities and a lot to be left for magic to happen. And I've had many discussions with my friends that are quite analytical. And we always end the discussions off with, you know, the difference between you and me is I believe in magic and you don't. 
and you keep doing what you need to do. But, you know, as, as Roald Dahl said, those who don't look for magic never find it. And so for me, it's not so much about the future, but actually what I'm feeling in the moment and becoming aware of that is quite a rush and also quite an awakening because you realize that you've been carrying these thoughts for generations, maybe, you know. This makes me think about a talk by the former head of innovation and creativity at the Walt Disney Company, Duncan Wardle. He alludes to a river of thinking. Essentially, it's a pattern of thinking or a riverbed that's been carved, right? It would be deep and wide with the more thoughts or water that flow through that same channel. And it's what allows you to make quick and informed decisions within your industry or your life because that river of thinking has become relatively well-developed. But crossing a wide, fast-moving river is really hard to do without tools. You'll need a raft or at least some rope to help you stay on course. Otherwise, you could very quickly find yourself downstream. So I guess in a similar manner, as John says, we need to stop thinking the way we have done for decades, unlearn what is shadowing our future and pivot our thinking ever so slightly. Your books help readers think about our illogical world. And uh, VUCA has been a buzzword for describing the world for a while. Volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. And I believe there's a, another word now. I think it's pronounced Barney, B-A-N-I. Uh, brittle, anxious, non-linear, and incomprehensible. How do you ground yourself when the future or even present becomes overwhelming or scary? Meditation. It always goes down to meditation. You know, all my talks are now ending with meditation. And the reason is, is that everything that's panic driven is based on a brainwave called beta. If you are not able to sleep at night, you've got a restless knee that's always popping up and down. If you need that cigarette or that glass of wine, you're in high beta. And in high beta, you are in danger. You're in survival mode. You're anxious. Your adrenaline is pumping. Your hands are cold. Your feet are cold. This is all signs of high beta brainwaves. But you know when you come back from holiday and you're driving back home and all of a sudden everything's so calm, you know, everything's like so easy. You think about that colleague at work that irritates the shit out of you and you think, eh, that's fine. I'm not, I'm not that bothered by him. And the reason is, is that your brain is now in alpha. And in a brainwave of alpha, you are not in survival. You're in creation mode. You see the world in pictures. You don't see the world in absolute outcomes. You see the world in broad strokes, not in finite strokes. And you're now in a state of imagination and possibility. And so if you're not spending the time managing your brain waves, and you know, my favorite is some people say to me, maybe many people say to me is, oh, my brain's too busy to meditate. And my response to that is, are you saying my brain is too slow? Um, and obviously not. And so secondly is what she's saying is that you're addicted to high brain waves and high beta brain waves, and you can't manage your brain. Your brain is managing you. So with all the issues that are going on in the world, when you see those issues from an alpha brain state, they're not that big. They're actually quite okay to deal with. And in fact, your focus changes from looking for things that make you anxious to looking for things that make you excited. That's so cool. How do you distinguish, John, between what we can and what we can't control about the future? Yeah, geez, you got great questions. I travel a lot. Yeah. And managing flights is an impossibility. But managing my behavior is an absolute possibility. And I get very little stressed when anything goes wrong. 
and I've managed myself, you know. Just recently, I got an email from my publisher to tell me that my application to be accepted by an English publisher has been declined. And I had been banking on this because I want to move my brand international more. And what I've learned is when you get given some news that you don't want, you go into something called the refractory period. Okay. And in this refractory period, you're triggered into sulking, anger, some trauma. And if you stay in this refractory period, you develop a mood. And if you keep this mood for long enough, it becomes a temperament. And if you keep it for long enough, it becomes your personality. Mm. And I've realized that these trigger points are fantastic opportunities to realize what you've been triggered by and to be manage yourself off it. And so I now see these things on the outside and my game has become how quickly can I get back to me and how much can I evolve my emotional intelligence to come back to me? And so whatever I can't control out there becomes a game for me to see how I can manage myself back to myself quickly. That's so cool. Um, Gamification is everywhere nowadays. Gamification, man. (laughs) What tools, I'm going to call them tools, what tools do we need to survive the now and the future? And I'm going to assume you're going to list meditation as one of those. Are there others? Yeah, there are others. Expose yourself to the future as often as possible. And by that, I mean, instead of listening to... Uh, just normal radio, listen to a podcast about the future. Mm. Or instead of watching TV, watch a documentary about something about the future. There's so much available for us to watch. And what happens when we start to watch and expose ourselves to this future, it becomes more understandable and it becomes more friendly. When I speak to audiences and they, and I'm explaining things to them, I see absolute like fright in their eyes and I'm like, but this has been going on for years. Where have you been? Sure. You know? And there's a great saying that says the future is here. It's just distributed unevenly mm. and it's uneven because people are not exposing themselves to this future. So I always tell teams, organizational teams, make Thursday mornings, future mornings, like stop doing operations, stop focusing on operations and just expose yourself to some language with artificial intelligence, with blockchain. And you know, initially it is sore for your brain because it's so new it's like brand new but if you don't you're becoming irrelevant and this is why the book is called who do we become is like how are you improving yourself consciously mentally physically to meet this future at what it needs from us rather than complaining about it and it starts with a very small process 10 minutes and then 20 minutes and then 30 minutes and then you become enthralled by it and then without you even realizing your focus changes your language changes and you become optimistic about something now that you understand so now if you're able to do three things one heal your past because you can't drag it with you to the future two expose yourself to the future so that you're working in your past now you're working in your future and the meditation brings you into the now and now you have an equation that allows you to deal with anything that's coming because you're getting over yourself, over your past, and exposing yourself to the future. I love that. And I think about how many conversations people have or TV shows that are created based on past experiences. What you're saying is, fine, watch those and see those, but then balance that out with stuff that you know, we're still learning about and be curious throughout everything. What do you think is the most powerful unlearning that we can all do? So there's two things. One, people don't know what unlearning is. It's a buzzword. It's like innovation. It's like, so what is unlearning? So the first thing is, I didn't know I could change my memories. And if you think about it, if you have a brutal memory, maybe with your dad, like I do, or did, I've had to go through a process of seeing my dad as a five-year-old boy that got treated badly by his dad. And I had to go through a process of seeing my dad doing the best he could with the tools available to him. 
And I've also had to see that many men in that age group just don't have the software available to emotionally think deeper or to heal deeper. And now all of a sudden my memories of my dad change. You know, I see him empathetically, not with anger. So the best learning or unlearning we could do is to heal any traumatic memories so that we don't carry them with us and see those people that we thought were out to get us with their own issues, they with their own struggles that they were having. The second thing we have to realize is the best way to unlearn is to let go of who we were through a process of meditation. I know I keep coming back to this, but you know, there's, you're either in the familiar past or the predictable future. And when you wake up in the morning and you think about your problems, they're all from the past. Mm. None of them are from the future, mm. which means that you are quite literally in the past. All of us are sitting in the past. So somebody might have had an issue that happened to them 22 years ago, and they're still carrying that, re- that residue and still angry with that person. And so what happens is that your whole life is actually in the past. And the only time that your life is not in the familiar past or the predictable future is where you're nobody, nowhere, no time, when you're in theta brain state in the middle of meditation. And in that state, the brain structure that you have where your neurons are wired and fired together in certain ways start to relax. And now you can start to unlearn because otherwise you can't unlearn. There's no way you can unlearn. So there's two two ways that I've seen unlearning happen under sort of um, like x-ray machines or whatever they call MRI machines. Yes. One is psychedelics, is when the brain is on psychedelics, the pathways that had been etched into our brain for generations or just for decades start to relax. And you now start to develop new neurons and new ways to think about things. And the second way is meditation. So... To really understand the science of unlearning, it takes time, it takes courage, it takes fitness towards taking those steps to get our brain waves to relax so we can begin new ones. Now, what happens is usually our ego construct fights for familiarity. And where your brain will say, no, 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 you don't have time for that. No, 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 stay where you are. Even though it's uncomfortable, it doesn't matter. Just stay where you are because the familiar is most important. Because I don't have to use energy to rewire myself. Mm -hmm. It's really just in a survival mode. And so we have to break through that process. So every time I say to one of my friends, come do a shamanic process with me, they're like, no, 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 I'm fine, I'm fine. I'm like, look, we all fear it because what's happening is that your brain is saying, I don't really want to change. I do, but I don't really want to change. And so it takes a lot of courage to move there. So unlearning is one, unlearn your traumatic memories. And two, utilize meditation and psychedelics to try and help. Yeah, we talk about unlearning. We talk about the deep work that we need to do. Uh, you speaking about you know waking up in the morning. We're pretty much on loop. I think it might have been Andrew Huberman who I'd watched speaking about. You don't wake up in the morning and think, ah, oh, the sunshine, the grass is green, the birds are chirping, wonderful. We invariably wake up and we think about something that happened yesterday that sets the tone for the rest of our day. And as you quite rightly say, then we're basing our today on what happened yesterday and our expectations that things are going to be the same as they were as opposed to opening ourselves up for what's possible in the future. Well said and well summarized. You know, I woke up this morning at four because I think the the most spiritual part of my body is my bladder. <laughs> morning. <laughs> morning. <laughs> uh, four o'clock I wake up and every, I think it's every morning I'm like, no, no, I'm just going to go back to bed a bit. And three minutes later, you're like, just get up and meditate, shut up. <laughs> and what's so funny is... I was stressing about something that happened yesterday and I've been meditating 17 years and I went into meditation and only at the end of my hour meditation did I feel my body release. And you know, I'm in a, such a good mood today and it's based because I had to do that hour meditation this morning and it was 40 minutes into the meditation. I was still irritated. I was still fighting that old thinking of irritation and frustration and I felt quite literally my body release 
in the last 10 or 15 minutes of that meditation. And I was at such peace and so grateful that my bladder woke me up at four. <laughs> John, how do you stay curious? You know, the most beautiful thing about curiosity is it's this constant magnet for more of what you're curious about. And, you know, for me to fly across the world and spend thousands of dollars to learn more is an absolute joy. There's no like, there's no thing in my head. It's like, oh, and when you prioritize your curiosity, what happens is you become an essentialist and it's different to a minimalist. Okay. You know, an essentialist is somebody who takes three or four or five things in their lives that they absolutely prioritize and love. And you accentuate those with time and money and everything else becomes a minimalist. So for me, I'm a minimalist when it comes to watches, cars, houses, physical assets. I'm a maximalist when it starts coming to self-development, technology, health and fitness and travel. And so if you follow me on social, you know, I'm constantly traveling. I'm constantly at the best workouts, the best trainers, the best traveling. But I don't have a car. I don't have a watch. And my clothes are very simple. I don't have like so. I think curiosity, when you start to prioritize your curiosity, your energy, your focus, your time, and your money start being sucked up by this amazing thing that makes you come alive and makes me emotional to think about because for the longest time I prioritized rubbish that wasn't what made me curious, but what made my ego look good and what made me look good to the outside world, but really wasn't satisfying me, you know? And so curiosity is this wonderful golden thread to your genius. And when you follow this golden thread, when you access that genius, people pay to come and watch you speak. Yeah. And it always like it boggles my mind, you know. And again, you know, I've had five book launches this time around. You know, every single one of them have been sold out. And every single time I get there and they sold out, I am incredibly surprised. I'm like totally delighted and surprised and I never take it for granted. And I, I think to myself, these people have come all the way here to listen and it's because I've accessed my genius, you know, and, and Ayahuasca said to me once, uh, and I've done about 40 or 50 ceremonies for the last 15 years. And she said to me, and I say she, because she's a plant from South America and she takes on a female energy when she heals you in the process of ceremony. And she said to me once, remember that your access to genius is not yours. It's yours to share. Mm. And if you stop sharing, you'll stop getting access because you're a vessel for this genius. And I think this is everybody's genius is when you tap into it, you realize that it's a forever level of access. And when people want to be protective over their work or they want to sign NDAs or they want to have IP, you realize that they haven't understood genius. And when you start to access this level of genius, you start to realize that it's a forever flow of energy and information. Think about Huberman. He's accessed it in such a magical way. And all of us are beneficials of it. And what does he share it for? Free. It's free. They can listen to it continuously for free. And all of us are plugged into his genius, making us levels of genius, accessing his genius. And now imagine a world where 7 billion people are accessing the genius and sharing. I mean, think about the potential of humankind where we are able to reestablish relationships with each other and ourselves. This is my mission, man. It's my mission to try and get people to realize that you've got everything you need inside yourself. You just got to do the work. And then we live in a world that's optimistic, collaborative, and aimed at just improving everybody else's lives. Yeah. And unfortunately, we live in a world where we have leaders that suffer from old man syndrome. And they come from a world of scarcity. 
You know, they don't understand this level of genius. And so really it's my mission in life to try and bring as much of this message to the world, both in my words, my writing, as well as in my actions. It's nice to talk to an optimist more often than not. Thank you for listening to this episode of Some Assembly Required. I have included the links to John's social media handles as well as his website address in the description of this episode. If you reach out to him, tell him I say hi and that you heard him speak on this podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do share it with anyone that might also enjoy it. And remember to follow Some Assembly Required on your favorite podcast listening app. I really appreciate it. You can also give the show a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. The Some Assembly Required theme music is by my friend and Cape Town musician, Josh Prinsloo. Podcast production by me. Thank you for listening to Some Assembly Required. I look forward to learning more with you next time. Nailed it!